No, it's okay. I've got a really big mouth. Okay, our mic does not appear to be working, but I have a really big mouth, as you all well know. Uh, I get the honor of introducing the Colin Campbell Stewart Memorial Lectureship today. And I'm going to have a few moments to just explain to you what that is all about and to welcome to Jake Stewart and his lovely wife, Priscilla, who is uh, Mr. Stewart is Colin Stewart's son. And they came through the slush and the mud and the ice this morning uh, down from Vermont to be here with us. So I believe this is the 34th annual lecture. It was endowed back in 1971, but we actually started the lectureship back in 1983. Dr. Stewart, that we're celebrating today, is actually the second important Dr. Colin Excuse Stewart to Dartmouth. Excuse me, ma'am. Oh, <laughs> Did you hear me? I did. Thanks. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> Okay, so now they, they want to be able to hear it on the, uh, on the computer. Um, so, as I was saying, uh, the Colin Campbell Stewart that we're celebrating, which is the third, was the second important Colin Campbell Stewart, as his dad was actually a professor of physiology at Dartmouth for 40 years, uh, and um, actually an acting dean in the medical store for a couple years. But the Dr. Stewart we're here to celebrate was a beloved pediatrician and a professor of pediatrics who received his undergraduate degree at Dartmouth, magna cum laude in 1923, then attended Dartmouth Medical School for a couple years and finished up his medical school training at the University of Pennsylvania in 1926. He completed his, his pediatric training in Philly and then at Mayo Clinic in, in Minnesota and returned to Hanover in 1931 to become the first pediatrician of the brand new Hitchcock Clinic and faculty of the Dartmouth Medical School. Along with many official capacities at the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Board of Pediatrics, the New Hampshire Medical Society and Pediatric Society, he was a pediatrician to many of the children in Hanover, including the pediatrician for the grade school and the high school. The Hanover Gazette, in an editorial, called him one of the town's most loved and valued citizens, a man who never put his own convenience above the call for a doctor's help. He passed in 1962 at a very young age of 59, and in one of his obituaries, his deep and abiding love of children was noted. Quote, he never merely treated a case, but always felt a genuine compassion for any sick child and never spared himself in doing everything in his power to bring back life and health. In this spirit, the Colin C. Stewart Memorial Lectureship was founded and established in 1971 by families and friends, and we celebrate his tradition in patient care and teaching with his annual lecture. And we are very proud and pleased that we have Judy Palfrey to join us to present Grand Rounds in his honor. And I'm going to turn this over to Kathy Shubkin, who knows Judy quite well, to give us a little background on Judy. Thank you all very much for attending, and very special thanks for your ongoing... Your ongoing commitment after all these years to the Department of Pediatrics here at Dartmouth. We're really grateful for all that you've done for us in all these years. Thank you, Sue, and thank you again to the Stewarts for continuing to support this lectureship and professorship support in support of general academic pediatrics. Um, and it is my honor and privilege to introduce somebody, as uh, Sue said, that I've known for a number of years, Dr. Judith Palfrey, and her husband were actually quite influential in, her, in my career. Um, Dr. Sean Palfrey, who couldn't join us today, was my continuity clinic preceptor, for those of you in my continuity clinic. Um, but Dr. Judith Palfrey graduated from Harvard. Um, 
followed by her MD degree at Columbia. She wound up doing her internship and residency at Einstein and followed that by a developmental uh, fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. Her accolades and her CV are long and deep, so I am going to just try to highlight a few of the things that really made an impression on me. She is a developmental pediatrician who's had a long-standing interest in the development of preschool children and activities. She also has been an incredible uh, proponent and uh, supporter of community pediatrics and advocacy, and she's going to be speaking with us on child health advocacy today. Um, her honors and awards, she has been working with the Let's Move campaign with the Obamas. She is the former president of the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2010, and in 2015 won a Lifetime Achievement Award for her work in developmental pediatrics from Boston Children's Hospital. She currently still serves at Boston Children's Hospital. She is also a house dean, which is now, I understand the correct term, at Harvard College, where she and her husband have mentored approximately 400 students per year, undergraduates per year. So her life has been incredibly full, busy, and rewarding, and it's really an honor to have somebody um, as Judy's, Judy Palfrey's stature come and present to us today. So thank you very much, um, Dr. Palfrey, for joining us. Well, this is just a treat to be here, and I'm very much honored to be giving this Stuart lecture. Uh, I want to hope that our slides are going to work here. There they go. Um, I had the chance just to uh, learn a little bit about uh, Dr. Stewart uh, and was very taken by uh, all of the things that were uh, written about him and the fact that he was uh, so devoted to this town uh, that he really is, we're going to be talking about advocacy, but here was somebody who walked outside the walls of the hospital, was very uh, involved in the, uh, the, the town of, uh, of Hanover through the schools, which is a... Uh, very important uh, linkage uh, for those of us in, in child health. Uh, and then the fact that he was so involved with the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I didn't realize the part about the board, but uh, so it's really an honor to be here uh, giving this lecture, uh, and I hope that this would be something that uh, he would uh, have enjoyed to, uh, to know about. So I'm going to be talking today uh, quite deeply about advocacy. Uh, and advocacy is something that uh, we think about, we talk about, we do. Uh, we don't all uh, see it in exactly the same way. It's a, uh, if you just define the word, it is to speak out, uh, which could be meant uh, in many different ways. But if we think back about the history uh, of our profession, and it, it, I think most people here are pediatricians. How many nursing, child health nurses, OTs, anybody from a social work? So when, when I say child health, I mean all of us. But uh, our, our profession of child health uh, really does go back uh, to people like George Armstrong, uh, Abraham Jacoby, who uh, brought uh, much uh, emphasis on uh, community and public health, and his wife, uh, Mary, Mary uh, uh, Putnam uh, Jacoby. Uh, we have a long history uh, of having roots uh, in advocacy. 
But uh, where I sort of come on this, and I think some of you may also, uh, is this proposition, and that is that child health in America is not what it should be, uh, given the enormous resources we have in this country. Uh, and that's an indictment, but it's also a challenge, and it's also uh, an opportunity in, in many ways. And if we think about some of the challenges that we have now uh, in the United States, uh, a third of our children, and, and this always just make, makes shivers go up and down my spine, uh, are overweight or obese, uh, with all that means uh, about the futures ahead of them, uh, a third of children uh, predicted uh, to have diabetes uh, as adults, uh, one in nine children living in food insecure homes in the richest country in the world. Uh, a quarter of a million babies are born uh, to teen mothers each year, and I don't know where my friend is here, uh, but three quarters uh, are, uh, of a million are pregnant uh, each year. Uh, between four and nine uh, adolescents have attempt attempted suicide. This is not just writing a note. This is an actual attempt, and our infant mortality <coughs> is higher than 26 other countries in the world. We also have a, an interesting ch uh, challenge, uh, and that is this uh, apparent increase uh, in chronic illness, and that's one of the things that we in, in hospital centers are seeing a great deal of. What, what's going on with our immune system? Uh, why are we increasing uh, with uh, uh, allergies and immune, immunologically uh, uh, induced uh, problems, what's happening with our asthma, and then uh, what's happening uh, with conditions like uh, autism, are we just naming a, a wider spectrum of things and, 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 and catching it, uh, or uh, is uh, there uh, something in our air and our water uh, and all around us uh, that, like lead, as we know, uh, is affecting our, uh, our little baby's brains? So if we think about those conditions that I've just raised, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about social determinants of health. Now, I have to tell you that George Armstrong and Abraham Jacoby and Mary Putnam, they all talked about social determinants of health, and in fact, they even used that term. Uh, it's interesting. It's a term that's been around for a long, long time, but for some reason, it now has elevated into the discourse that we have, and I hope that it's, it's being talked about with uh, residents and medical students and, and so forth, uh, in part because there was a big World Health Organization report about five years ago called Social Determinants of Health. But basically, we're talking about the fact that while uh, we certainly still have things like infectious diseases, et cetera, uh, if, if we only look at biologically determined uh, disorders, we miss a great deal of what's going on. And issues of poverty, ethnicity, geography, isolation, things of these, this nature have profound effects uh, on our children's health. And here um, we can just see... Um, just captured uh, here uh, the, and of course this is good to show you the rural one, except I'm not sure I can see. There we go. Uh, there it is. Uh, you can see the rural mortality one and a half times higher uh, than the urban, uh, and then the poverty rate 
you can see much, much higher. So uh, this is just a synopsis of what I think we're all aware of. Uh, I find it uh, a little clearer to just reach out and, and say this, that uh, you can disagree with me, but I would consider uh, the issues that raised here of violence, child abuse, homelessness, and so forth as health outcomes. Something that kills you seems to me to be a health outcome. Some people would say that's not true, uh, but, I, but um, th this is what I'm talking about. If it kills you, if it maims you, uh, it has something to do with health. Uh, and as we know, uh, we don't always get uh, uh, the opportunities to work on these things because in our health system, in our insurance uh, programs and so forth, these are not things that are necessarily supported. So that's a short uh, introduction uh, to the second premise, and that is uh, that uh, some of us, in, uh, or many people around the country, but some of us uh, some years ago, uh, really sat down and said uh, the following. Uh, pediatrics would be stronger and more effective if community medicine advocacy were core elements of our training and practice. Uh, and this particular idea was something that Ann Dyson, did anybody here know Ann? You did, you, yeah. uh, that Ann Dyson and a number of us uh, thought a lot about, and that was that as we looked around, when we were talking about advocacy, we looked around and we said, who are the advocates? Who are the people who are standing up for our children, who are doing things to change what's going on? What we saw was that most of the people who were doing advocacy were doing it at the end of their lives. They were doing it when their hair color was like this, uh, and they were maybe practicing a little bit less, or they were doing it on the weekend. They were uh, volunteering uh, in their community. They were, they were doing things uh, around the edges. Dr. Stewart was the school doctor. He was doing it during the day. It was part of his job. And what we're saying here is the doing it at the end of your life, doing it on the weekends, that's all fine, but it's not enough and it's not very effective. What would it mean if those activities were integrated and respected just in the same way that teaching and research and laboratory work, et cetera, are? And paid for, actually. Um, so that's, the, that's sort of the premise of what we're talking about here. Uh, again, just to say why that's important, if we look at the causes of uh, death for children. This is what they are. The root causes have to be looked at. Uh, if we had a, an outbreak, as we do now, do you know, we've got, you, you've got a Zika and we've got some mumps, so uh, I, I'm, uh, I often sort of contrast this and say, well, we've taken care of the uh, infectious diseases. We haven't taken care of the infectious diseases, but at least we have an approach, right? They're still there, they're emerging, but we have an approach. We have buildings like this that do translational research from the molecule to the this. We don't have approaches for many of these things. How do you approach suicide? How do you approach homicide? We, we don't think in that way. So what do we mean by pediatric advocacy? If I think it's something that should be a core element, what in the world am I talking about? <coughs> Having, having sort of 
looked at this, talked to a lot of people, done focus groups, all of this kind of thing. Uh, what what I found is the 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 way to get our, our minds around this is kind of a framework. And the framework goes like this. There, there are four types of advocacy, not one. There are probably more, but these are the four that make sense to me. The first is clinical advocacy. The second is group, and we'll spend some time on each of these. The third is systems, and the fourth is professional. So in each of these areas, there are things that could be changed and that speaking out about changing them may make some sense. The very most important and the highest impact of advocacy is clinical advocacy. And hearing about Dr. Stewart, we're hearing about a superb clinical advocate. Because this is where the big differences go. But it's a person who doesn't take things for granted, comes into the office, comes into the town, and says, I want to do this differently. I want to do it better. I want to use more resources. I want to be sure that uh, as electronic cigarettes are coming in and I'm seeing my uh, patients, uh, that they at least know that this is something uh, that's going on. So clinical advocacy is taking the best that we know, and I would uh, posit that Bright Futures uh, does that, um, taking the best that we know and making sure that it is implemented, and it's implemented fully with all the resources behind the suggestion. So if we suggest uh, that someone should be having uh, a, 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 a bike helmet to protect against uh, bicycle injuries, we don't just suggest it. We make it possible to get a bike helmet, whatever that takes. If we're suggesting that someone stop smoking, we don't just exhort them and say, stop smoking, stop smoking. We actually get them the support. This is what we mean by full clinical advocacy. Or uh, if we're seeing that obesity is such a problem as it is, uh, we are actually getting in our car, going and finding places where our patients uh, could go to summer camp, could uh, participate in afternoon uh, sports. We're working with the local uh, community as partners to make sure that they're swimming and healthy nutrition uh, and teen mentoring, because that is the penicillin for the children. Now, what do I mean by group advocacy? Well, this is where we see it once, take care of it. See it twice, you worry about it. See it three times, wozer, you try to do something about it. Group advocacy. And by the way, the, sub the subtext of this uh, talk uh, is uh, that we're going to talk a little bit in, in more depth uh, about uh, one particular problem, which is gun violence. Uh, but I'm just going through these so that we can, we can kind of get to that. <clears throat> so just to give you a sense of the kinds of things I mean in terms of uh, group advocacy, this is uh, perhaps knowing that within uh, your clinic population you have a lot of uh, young women who've become pregnant. Uh, this, is my, this is my boss, actually, uh, Joanne Cox, who runs the Young Parents Program at Children's. Do you have a teen tot model here? 
No. Um, the, so the teen top model is is uh, very popular around the country. We actually that that, that teen pregnancy uh, number that you saw the the two hundred fifty uh, uh, thousand um, is. Uh, is actually down uh, because of the fantastic work uh, of people all around the country who've uh, focused on teen pregnancy. Uh, but the uh, the fact is that there are still many teen uh, parents. Uh, they need a lot of support. Uh, and putting together a group uh, clinical program like the Teen Top model uh, can really bring to them uh, many uh, services which are uh, excellent for them and for their children. Um, this is a, a little bit of a far-out example uh, of group advocacy, uh, and uh, you're not going to meet many Wendy Rosses in your life, uh, but this is a developmental pediatrician, Wendy Ross, uh, who was really struck by the fact that uh, one of the, the problems that her families, the families of kids with autism had, was that they couldn't go see grandma uh, for Christmas. Uh, it was hard for uh, families with children with autism to get on an airplane and go anywhere uh, because the children would act up, and uh, so the families would say, okay, uh, we'll, we'll just accept this fact and not be able to do the normal thing that other families did. And so she, um, this is just way out, she went to the airlines, and she said, uh, could you help me to desensitize both the airline personnel uh, and the children and families families to this whole uh, episode of being in an airport. Uh, and by golly, she's done it with these simulations and training. Uh, and United Airlines has done an incredible job. I think some of the other airlines are doing it. Uh, and now she's taken on, on uh, ballparks. Uh, and she's uh, been able to uh, make it possible uh, for young people with uh, autism to have uh, much more normal uh, experiences and really qu quite, quite remarkable. Another group, of course, with uh, uh, group advocacy are people in global health, like uh, uh, Kathy going down to Nicaragua and so forth. Uh, this is my friend Peter Roloff, who uh, is a MedPeds person who does wonderful work uh, in Guatemala. Uh, and he works across the spectrum of, of problems. But one of the big things that he does uh, is to work on malnutrition. Uh, and he's been able, over a period of time, uh, with severely stunted young people uh, to actually improve uh, their health outcomes. Uh, he also works on many problems with uh, adults. Uh, but the reason I'm showing this um, is because I asked Peter one day, you know, what what are the keys to your success? <laughs> How is it that you're able to do this incredible work? And these were the three things that he said. He said, first of all, nothing is hopeless, uh, which I thought was just a, a wonderful thing to say. The second thing he said, which I think was extremely important when we're talking about people in poverty, he said, parents and patients deserve diagnosis and a treatment plan. Maybe it's socially determined. Maybe there's poverty. Maybe there aren't many resources. But parents and patients deserve a diagnosis and a treatment plan. And I suspect that that would be something that Dr. Stewart uh, would have said. And then the final thing uh, is that you can do a lot with a little. Uh, and particularly in the global context, actually, money goes uh, very, very far. So that's the kind of advocate's uh, point of view. Now, systems is what I think most people think about when we think about uh, 
advocacy, marching out with placards and seeing what we can do, making sure that people are registered to vote and that the electorate gets out for, for, for voting and that the policies that are put forward make sense. Um, and of course, the sort of ultimate uh, for uh, some of this was work on uh, healthcare policy at the, at the highest level. Uh, Kathy asked me, when was I president of the American Academy of Pediatrics? I actually was president in 2010 when the, the ACA was passed and was very proud to, to be there. That's uh, Renee Jenkins uh, in the background with Mr. Obama. Um, and so this obviously is, is you know, high-level systems uh, kind of uh, work. Uh, I still have the question marks and, and uh, exclamation point in here, right? <laughs> it's a work in progress. Uh, but uh, how many people here are members of the American Academy of Pediatrics? <laughs> We hope a, a fair number. Uh, and again, Dr. Stewart was uh, very much a part of it. Uh, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics provides for us in pediatrics a wonderful uh, amount of information, uh, a great deal of explanation of what are the policies, and it allows us an entrance as child health advocates to work on the things that we care so much about. And in the case of uh, Healthcare reform. Um, we we actually were. Um, yeah, I've done something very bad. Um, in the case of uh, healthcare reform, uh, we actually were uh, very much uh, respected uh, in Congress uh, and very much expected uh, to be voicing the importance of children. Uh, and actually, without the kind of access that we had, we would not have uh, the. Uh, you may know if you, your own children or grandchildren uh, go for uh, primary care uh, for um, preventive services, right, sometimes. Uh, what's the copay? Zero. Zero barrier. Right? So we're looking at pre preventive care, able to get a zero barrier to preventive care. That was all done in back rooms, not too many cigars, but a lot of back rooms and a lot of discussions and a lot of walking up and down hallways. A lot of fun, too, actually, to, to be honest. But making sure that the word child was in there, that no copay was in there, that Bright Futures was in there, that home visiting was in there, that community health workers were in there. The, this law actually has got a lot of problems with it, but it has a lot, a lot of good things that are day-to-day -day, uh, work that came through. Another kind of systems advocacy, this is my husband, Sean, who was very sad not to be here today, uh, has to do on the local level with working uh, with uh, state uh, programs and my and he's been working for years and years to get an all-payer uh, immunization program in uh, Massachusetts, which was finally uh, finally passed uh, last year. But uh, as I mentioned to you, uh, the the thing that Kathy had asked me to talk about uh, was the issue of gun violence and. <clears throat> This is a group of uh, young people from uh, California, actually in California. Uh, something that's happened that's very, very interesting is that all of the residency programs in California have joined together in an advocacy group, uh, and they actually go together uh, to Sacramento on a number of issues. And this is a, is a group of the residents in California uh, actually talking about guns. Now, 
I think we all know these things. Uh, this is a, a distressing fact that guns actually do kill children. Um, at the time of the, the uh, Newtown uh, horrible disaster, um, uh, my husband and I felt kind of compelled to say something or do something, as I think many many people here do. I, I shared with uh, I shared with Kathy that this was for a very personal reason. Uh, my my uh, uh, my uh, uh, my niece uh, at, a, at age eighteen uh, uh, had a lady's gun. You know what a lady's gun is? Something small enough to put in your uh, put in your purse. Uh, she was uh, somewhat depressed, and one day she used it. So uh, you come to, um, and by the way, it didn't work very well, so it was a long time on the, before taking off the respirator and all that stuff. But um, you come to these things with, with, from lots of places, oftentimes personal. Um, but this sort of drove us uh, to speak out. Uh, and uh, we actually were asked by the New England Journal to write a little something. Uh, and, and so we looked, at the, we looked at the information. We looked at the data. Uh, and it was astounding. Uh, the, the large number uh, of young people, and you'll see that's 1 to 24, uh, but 6,000 uh, gun deaths uh, in that year. And that, when you took it per day, became seven deaths uh, per day, and actually that to the, sm to the younger group. Uh, so, you know, this is a big, big, big pathogen. It's a big, big, big killer. And um, we played around a little bit with the numbers and, and just looked at them and looked at the websites and all that stuff. And what became very clear was that this rate of, of, of uh, death was twice that of the cancer rate. Cancer's still there, still bad, but guns were killing it twice. Five times the heart disease rate in these ages, obviously and 15 times the infection rate. So guns, clearly a pathogen. So I want to tell you something very proudly, actually, uh, and, 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 and something hopeful, right? I said hope is really important. And that is that pediatricians, child health people, have actually been in the forefront of the battle about gun violence, in the forefront. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this sort of 20-year battle and about how it's all about all of us getting together, teamwork, yes, leadership, yes, Kathy Christopher, but also everybody, and tell you about some of the successes, the challenges, and the future directions. So this is a really important thing to note, uh, and it is, that it's, is that things have been worse. <laughs> well, <laughs> not much, but... Um, I'm not going to pull here, but you can you can see that. See 1990 there. See 1990. I'm I'm just now reading Finale. Has anybody read Finale? It's a book about the uh, Reagan years. Very very interesting. This was a period of total. Uh, I mean, cocaine was everywhere. Guns were everywhere. We were in total social array, disarray. 
We're, we're getting back to that point now. But the, the tip of the 1990s was the worst. So look at that, that curve that comes down there very sharply, right? Who helped do that? Police, clergy, and pediatricians were very helpful in, in bringing that down. And how did we do it? First of all, we got incensed, right? This didn't make sense. This was wrong. We worked on a public awareness. We've worked on policy statements, prevention interventions. And then we did some research, which was kind of an important thing to do. <coughs> Good response, right? So, you know, hit with advocacy, hit people with some emo emotion, very hard emotion. I actually, had, uh, our technology is <laughs> challenging enough. Uh, I had, have a few little video clips that are just as, as wrenching as these. Uh, the, the one that sort of an incredible bunch of little children playing and, and saying silly things. There's a noise in silence. And that was put out by the group in Syracuse, just powerful, powerful uh, in terms of what uh, guns can do. Uh, and Kathy mentioned to me that the major thing that you worry about here uh, in New Hampshire uh, is just the access to uh, maybe a gun that's being used uh, to kill the chickens or a gun that's being used uh, by somebody, you know, way out in a shack uh, who's, who's worried that uh, she's living alone and then the grandchildren come and the, and the kids find it. Uh, and these are the kinds of things that actually uh, probably uh, have easier solutions than some, some of the others. So uh, making this uh, obvious public uh, speaking out, and then gun violence policy statements. And Bob Sagey, who I would suggest that you, you get up here, who's the real expert on this, was the head of the, the group that made the policy statement. Uh, basically, it says the absence of guns from children's home is the most reliable, effective measure to prevent firearm. And then goes on to say, if you can't have absence, uh, then to make sure that we uh, are, are providing um, safe storage and, and uh, locking and so forth. Uh, it also talks about getting rid of assault weapons, getting rid of gun show uh, loopholes and so forth, uh, and of course banning the uh, high magazines and so forth. So the, the AAP also uh, puts information into the consumer safety, uh, and here is where I think uh, you know, a lot of discussion, particularly here where people uh, have, there's a gun culture and where people uh, may actually you know, rightfully use uh, the guns for uh, their, their occupation or whatnot, uh, at that point, trigger locks, lock boxes, and so forth. Do you all give out lock boxes here, by the way? So uh, some some places do, and I just was meeting with the AG uh, in Massachusetts, and the, you know they were asking for suggestions. What can we actually do? And one of the things that we we sort of kicked around was the idea that if we could get health insurance to pay for our time giving out lockboxes and get the lockboxes, that that would be something. You know, it, it's it's not getting them out of the home, but it's in fact. Uh, uh, 
uh, making uh, things much safer. And of course, these trigger pressures and, and the, the uh, now the exciting things about the, uh, uh, having your uh, your own uh, thumbprint uh, be the only thing that will allow and so forth. The technological things, but uh, those are you know kind of sci-fi as, as far as they can think. Now, everybody know Judy Schechter. Judy is our current hero, uh, what, or at least mine. Uh, what, uh, what happened in Florida was really very distressing, and that was that in Bright Futures, we suggest that we ask families if there's a gun in the home. It's, you know, do, do, you, uh, do you have adequate food? Uh, have you uh, got a uh, helmet for uh, your child if he's riding a bicycle? Have you had a TB test? Do you have a gun in the home? It's one of, a, do you smoke? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's one of a laundry list of questions. You don't ask it in isolation. You ask it as part uh, of all the things that uh, it could be affected. Uh, in Florida, you know, everybody know about this. The law, what did the law, what did the law say? What, 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 what would happen to the first go around? What would happen to a pediatrician or, or a family practitioner if they asked the question the first time the law went around? What's that? Million dollars in jail term, right? Um, that seemed a little extreme. <laughs> that seemed a little extreme, uh, and so it, 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 that was brought down. And the only, and what happened was you were just brought up in front of the Florida Medical Board. And for doctors, that's almost as bad uh, as you know a million dollars in a year in jail. Who wants to be you know put put in front of the medical board and told you were a bad person? So what happened was little pediatricians went and got a lawyer and sued the state and said this is against the First Amendment and restraint of trade. And guess what? We won. But on appeal. We lost. So this this law, the so-called gag law, is actually now in total limbo. Uh, and what's happening is that you're beginning to see uh, challenges uh, to this. And if, as I understand it, their uh, bills have been entered in 10 other states, and there was a bill passed in Missouri. So uh, this, you know, is in the airwaves maybe to the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. This is a major, major thing that we all need to understand, think about, think about how uh, the responses will come. Now, a nice thing is that the House of Medicine is completely uh, allied together on this issue, uh, and so that you've got almost every uh, doctor's group, nurses group, et cetera, coming forward saying this is this is unacceptable. Uh, and this spring in um, in Chicago, the National uh, Medical uh, Group on Gun Violence, Medical Council on Gun Violence, will be having its second meeting in Chicago, and will actually be honoring Kathy Christoffel, who really was the amazing pediatric leader back in the 90s uh, on these things, and, and hope that a new Kathy Christoffel and others will will emerge, uh, and I think they are emerging. So. The, the next thing in the, in, the, in the framework is this issue of, of professional. What, what do we mean by uh, professional advocacy? And basically, what we mean by this is taking a step back and saying, you know, are we actually following what we say we're going to do? Uh, we have these ACGME competencies that we try to make sure our, our training lines up with. And one of them is professionalism 
is a manifestation of commitment to carrying out professional responsibilities, adherence to ethical principles, and sensitivities to a diverse patient population. I'm going to hold myself back from saying anything political right now, but you know what I'm thinking. <laughs> a diverse population, right? You all know what I'm thinking. Um, or maybe you don't. Um, <laughs> but the, the, this professionalism now includes this idea that we all need to work together. We, need, we as, as uh, pediatricians, cannot do these things. We cannot take any of these, these health issues on by ourselves and shouldn't. Likewise, the families, youth, and others need us. So that this is, a, this is something that, that we do all together. And I think, again, the, the model of Dr. Stewart, uh, knowing that he was needed in the schools, that he, the uh, interaction uh, in, in the town and the community, uh, extremely important. So um, I, I wanted to mention just uh, briefly, uh, the, and, and those of you who are, are any of the residents here? I don't know. In the back, oh, in the back row. Okay. How many of you are measure? How many of you are members of Somsrit? Hi. Raise your hand. Hi. 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 Okay. Because uh, because the AAP is our professional organization. The AAP cares desperately about young people. Desperately, desperately, desperately. You know, uh, this is a terrible thing to say. Anybody here a, a teacher, an educator? No, I mean, uh, like in, in, like in school. school, public educator. <laughs> yes? Yeah. So I'm going to be a little bit, I, I, I'm always a little bit uh, provocative. But, I, but one of the, the, the differences that, uh, that I see with young people, because I spend a lot of time with young people, is that in medicine, we actually care about our young people. We actually think they're important. Uh, and we give them all kinds of great supports. I think in some other professions, young people are, 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 uh, are not mentored in the way that we do. Um, so Samsrit is the section on medical students, residents, uh, and fellow trainees. Uh, and through this section, uh, there are all these wonderful advocacy projects, and they have worked uh, in the past on uh, uh, so-called Immuwise, which was a, uh, a project on immunizations. They partnered with the uh, the uh, excuse me. They partnered with the. Uh, I want to say the elders, the senior session section, so that they could learn about uh, the diseases that none of us see anymore. Although, have you seen a case of mumps today? Tomorrow? What's that? It's in Southern New Hampshire. Yeah, I, I, we, we, have, we have a, a kid in our house, so uh, it's, it's coming. So you'll be able to show uh, what mumps looks like. But uh, the, the uh, program was just fantastic where the uh, senior uh, physicians were able to work with the younger physicians uh, on this. The second uh, uh, project I wanted just to mention to you is that the section on medical students, residents, and, and fellow trainees took on guns. 
they, they said this is uh, just a really terrible thing. Uh, and they created wonderful uh, materials, which if any of you uh, want to have a look at, they're on the AAP website, uh, that are really helpful in terms of the things in clinical advocacy that we need to do, how to talk to parents, how to think about uh, guns, uh, what to do in terms of community programs uh, with girls clubs and, and, and boys clubs and so forth, uh, how to uh, consider the federal legislation as it was coming down. Uh, and now the Samstritz uh, campaign has been for two years because they've decided that this was such of a big one uh, called FACE. Are you involved with FACE? Get excited. Get into this. Uh, the reason that I'm saying get excited, get into this, is that pot, we are now taking on in the American Academy of Pediatrics poverty uh, and saying that poverty actually is a pathogen. Uh, and this is not an easy thing to get our heads around, not an easy thing to get uh, uh, specifics around. Uh, and this is the reason that the Somsters have taken this on for two years. But it is something that is happening, and it is very exciting. There they're looking at food insecurity, they're looking at access, they're looking at community engagement and education. Uh, and they're trying to get as many people involved through uh, the, the uh, medical students, medical students, many are involved through the residents and, and the fellows. <laughs> so I want to give you um, one last uh, thing, which is, uh, is, I think of as a gift. Uh, and that is the Richmond model. Uh, how many people here knew Dr. Richmond? <laughs> and, and I bet Colin Stewart knew Dr. Richmond. Uh, uh, but uh, I'm going to give you uh, a gift, which is uh, Dr. Richmond was a pediatrician, he's a psychiatrist as well, an incredible scholar, <laughs> incredible policymaker, visionary, a mentor, and a wonderful friend. And I'm always a little embarrassed to do this because in no way am I saying uh, that anybody should aspire to be him because I don't know how he was him, to be honest, except that he just was. Um, this is a man who started Project Health Start, Head Start, 25 million children affected. He then, when he was out working on Head Start, realized that the neighborhood health centers uh, in the towns where he went for the Head Start visits weren't very good. So he expanded the neighborhood health centers, and that's affected four to five million people. He then, and this is probably more important, actually, than Project Head Start, he then said, you know, I'm now the Surgeon General of the United States. What if I looked at the status of our country now said it wasn't good enough, set some goals, and set some strategy to get to those goals. So in other words, I looked at the teen pregnancy rate and said it's 250,000, uh, uh, 750,000 pregnancies and, and, uh, uh, and uh, 250,000 babies, uh, and I wanted to bring those numbers down. What would I do? How would I get there? So he wrote the Healthy People Guidelines. We're now on Healthy People 2020. The Healthy People guidelines are also the basis for the Millennial Development Goals and now the Sustainability Development Goals, Julius Richmond. And he fought the tobacco wars because he had a little time left over uh, and, <laughs> and was able to get billions and billions of dollars for research. So you know, there just is nobody like him. He was a man for his century. Uh, but 
he left us, he died uh, a couple years ago, he left us with a gift, which is the Richmond model. And this is the Richmond model. Basically what Julie said was, if you want to get a policy passed, if you have an advocacy goal, you're not going to do it unless you have three things. First, you have a knowledge base, and that's why academic centers are so important. Second, you have political will, and third, you have a social strategy. So when he was talking about the knowledge base, what he meant by that, um, if I've done this right, what he meant by that was that we were grounded in a historical context, that we knew where things came from, that we understood uh, the trends and so forth, but that we also knew the statistics and we knew the best practices. And this is what we do in academics. We get this knowledge base. We figure it out. We study. I mean, I was so excited. I was just on a call with the Richmond Center itself and, and learning all of the science that's now looking uh, at how uh, nicotine works, for instance, and learning you know, why it's so dangerous. Uh, that's the knowledge base, and also with an eye to the future. Secondly, political will. Do we understand where people are coming from, how they're thinking? And this is why Kathy and I talked a little bit about how do you talk to somebody who has always had a gun, who loves a gun, uh, who thinks they're beautiful objects, which many people do. Uh, you, you've got to know what's the political feeling and, and how to move things along. You also have to know kind of what resonates with people. So ROI, return on investment, is the big thing. Uh, and here you have James Heckman's model, uh, which basically says put money in early childhood. Uh, business people love this. Political will is understanding who the, po the political body is and what is important to them. But the thing that Dr. Richmond, I think, did the, uh, of all these things the best was that he said, you have to have knowledge-based political will and social strategy all working together in a dynamic equilibrium. And you really need to understand this last one, social strategy. How do you get from A to B to C? It's all very well to say this is a problem. It's all very well to get your friends around you with some political will. But if you don't know what to do on Tuesday, if you don't know how to move the implementation of your, uh, your new clinic uh, uh, EHR system uh, with the population-based information in it that's going to drive change, you're nowhere. So social strategy was his major uh, contribution, and he was, a ma he was a massively brilliant social strategist, which is why he got Head Start going, which is why he got the Richmond Center going in the way that he did. But we can do social strategy in our primary care, through our partnerships, as part of our education, and as a contribution through advocacy. And what I'm talking about with social strategy is uh, this is just a simple way of thinking about it, but assessing the needs first, defining the population that we're working with. We can't work with everybody on everything. Defining our team and our timeline. Identifying an intervention or interventions. Putting it into place. And then monitoring, seeing what we did. Again, academic, monitoring it. And then celebrating when it goes well. Uh, and then coming back to assessing needs. So let me just give you 
one or two examples of this. Uh, we all know about asthma and how bad it is. And actually, uh, this, uh, I was trying to update my slides and I didn't get this one updated. But uh, these are the uh, uh, racial disparities in uh, asthma discharges in the city of Boston. And they're pretty awful, right? So uh, the, that blue line is, is, is black. Uh, families and th these numbers just get reproduced over and over again. So what do you do about that? You have the knowledge base that there's a problem, uh, so you try some things. And uh, asthma outreach is a big part uh, of what we've all learned. You've got to get out of the clinic. You've got to go see the homes. You've got to go see what the air quality is. You've got to see if you can make differences that way. And so there have been throughout the United States now a number of community asthma initiatives. This is one that we have done at the uh, Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, and having that information, having those interventions, doing the social strategy, uh, people have been able to bring those asthma uh, rates down. And uh, I apologize, because there's actually a, now a, a wonderful slide that shows that the rates across Boston are now down uh, because of this. And so that's a time uh, to celebrate success. And many of these things can be done in the residency. So many resident projects, like Reach Out and Read and so forth, uh, have been highly successful. Smoking cessation. Uh, is something that residents have done highly successfully using the Richmond model. Uh, and as I mentioned before, uh, in many of the states across the United States, residents are now learning the techniques for coming together, putting on our white coats. It's probably the only time a resident ever puts on a white coat, uh, but that's okay. Um, when I was in the uh, President of the Academy, uh, whenever we'd go to the White House, we had to wear our white coat. And it was very funny because I had to run right up to, to uh, Children's Hospital, please send me my white, my white coat to, to be able to wear. Uh, but uh, it's interesting because we're talking about gun violence, and uh, um, we know that the uh, uh, lobby for the, the gun uh, manufacturers, the NRA, uh, is very effective at showing up uh, at, uh, uh, you know, they're very effective. They show up. They have a, an issue that's very important to them, uh, and they're very passionate. Gee, they show up. They have an issue that's very important to them, and they're very passionate. Hmm. They show up. They have an issue that's very important to them, and they're very passionate. So this is a little bit what is happening with residents across the country. Uh, it's been very effective uh, for uh, programs to join together. So uh, I don't think this has happened in the New England area yet, but it's happened in Florida, it's happened in California, it's happened in a number of other, uh, of, uh, other places, and it's been uh, wonderful. So I want to thank you all for all that you do, uh, and thank you so much for uh, having this wonderful honor to be the uh, Colin Stewart lecturer. Thank you. Um, before we take questions, I just want to give a token of our appreciation, Dr. Palfrey, for your work both locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally for the advocacy of children, and most importantly and close to my heart, your advocacy in training a new generation of pediatrician and child health advocates. Um, to let the faculty know, we're going to be spending pretty much the rest of the day talking about residency education. Our new conference today, um, Steve and Sue and I are going to be working with the residents and Dr. Palfrey to highlight some of our residency advocacy training. 
And then Steve is going to be taking a group out to um, the Haven, our local homeless shelter, where uh, Dr. Poffrey is going to really be able to go in depth with some of our community faculty about advocacy. So thank you very well, much, Dr. Well, Poffrey. This is really heavy. Yes. <laughs> Token from Simon Pierce, our wow. last um, and with that, I'll open up some questions. Um, Dr. Gifford, she's our resident. I, I want you all to see this. Yes. <laughs> Whoa. Yes, it's engraved. Is that, is that beautiful? Yeah. Woo! Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, Kim Gifford's our residency director. Yes. So thank you um, for the fantastic talk and, um, and encouraging residents to engage more. Um, in thinking about your framing um, at the end and sort of the political will around Dartmouth, um, uh, quality improvement is sort of you know a big part of things here. Um, and you you talked about sort of group advocacy at the community level and systems level advocacy sort of nationally. And I wonder if you could just comment on sort of the face of advocacy at the institution level. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a wonderful question. And of course, we're in the middle of a transformation. Um, and we can either have this transformation go well or, or not. Uh, I'm very, very excited, um, to be honest, uh, and, and, and because I, I've just, I don't know how, how much I'm spilling the beans, so I have to be a little bit careful. Um, but um, some of the things that, that are happening now in, in my institution around ACO uh, development are just stunning. They are absolutely stunning in terms of saying, uh, you know, if we honestly look at uh, the things that are driving uh, people into the hospital and are keeping people into the hospital or driving them uh, to be high cost, it turns out and I'm spilling the beans, I think, but anyway, um, that um, if you take the same condition, right, you have one child who has social determinants and one child who does not, twice the number of hospital admissions. Twice. Two times. Do you hear that? Two times. Therefore, if you're doing quality improvement and you're trying to save money, you got to find out how to work on those social determinants, because that's going to bring that, that number down. And that means home visits, that means community health workers, that means all of these things. Therefore, next step, who pays, right? So show return on investment, always have Medicaid and the, and the Blues and every, or whoever you have in the room saying, whoo, look, this looks, like some, this looks like a place where we could get some money out of the system. And then figure out how to tier, how to, how to give uh, extra benefits for uh, the wraparound services and so forth. And, you know, part of this in terms of political will, my God, you've got to learn a whole new language, right? You have to learn how to talk to the insurers. You have to learn how to talk to the policymakers. Um, you know, who knew tiering? Who knew, you know, who knew all of these things? Um, it's very hard work. But the, the incredible thing that's happening now is that because we have data, we have incredible source of actual knowledge that you didn't have in 1990. You know, when Gore brought us into the <laughs> into the uh, electronic age, the digital age, we went over it. Um, something amazing. I mean, th this is something that, that, you know, your father didn't have. He couldn't look. He could look at individual patients and did. He could not look 
at these big uh, uh, dynamics of is this neighborhood looking this way versus this neighborhood. There's Bob Haggerty that I mentioned in here, um, actually in Rochester, years and years ago did a, a, a book called uh, Community, uh, what was his book called? Health, uh, child health in the community, I think, um, and and saw an amazing thing. He he looked at six neighborhoods, uh, and it turned out that there were two very very poor neighborhoods, uh, and then he looked at those two neighborhoods and they totally different health outcomes. They had the same economic background, but totally different health outcomes. And then he probed deeper to see what were the issues, what were the protective factors, what were the, 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 the uh, disheartening factors. And then he got the community physicians to go out and work in the community. Uh, and then we, the, he, did, uh, he and others did some uh, very interesting uh, comparisons of Rochester, Boston, and what was the other city? It, was, it was, wasn't here. So it was Rochester, Boston, and, and another New England city. But anyway, Rochester just wowed everybody because they were able to have a much, much lower uh, rate of uh, admission and uh, ED visits. Uh, and part of it, uh, honestly, was that uh, the physicians in uh, Boston didn't trust the patients, right? And so uh, they said, well, I'm not sure you're going to take your medicine, blah, 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 blah. I better put you in the hospital. Whereas the Rochester uh, doctors knew their patients, whether they were poor or not, trusted them, trusted themselves, and said, we can keep you out of the hospital. So back to your point, there's a, so much excitement in, in what we can do now with quality improvement. Dr. Van Hall. So, uh, how does one address that, that, that kind of, this is somewhat cynical, unfortunately, that the will has kind of translated into campaign finance reform? And, and, and you know, in a world like that, how, how do we Well, have uh, the you know. Or campaign finance, as I said. I, I, I was thinking, you know, not some not campaign finance reform might not be so no, bad. No, 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 no. Uh, showing up, having issues that matter, and being passionate. Uh, the, the people that uh, win in democracy show up, have issues that are important, and have a smile on their face. Uh, th there, there is absolutely no, uh, there, there is absolutely nothing as powerful as a smile. Uh, and you'll watch that. You'll watch it with the successful people, the people who come in. They don't get anybody following them. The people who have a smile on their face, no matter if you're talking to somebody that you absolutely disagree with, you're polite, you smile, you will get places. So political will is what we make of it. We're a democracy, and, and we have to act like a democracy. Uh, and where it's not one issue, et cetera. Uh, and, and this, you know, I, I've been saying to our students, I, I do live with 450 students from very diverse backgrounds, and this has been the hardest, no question, the hardest year that we've been, uh, uh, we, we changed the name House Master because it was so painful for people. Um, I've been saying to them, this is the most difficult time and the healthiest time. Yes, sir. There's a, I think there's another answer that's, that's uh, complementary to what you just said to that question. My hunch is that 
what you're asking is what's the most effective way to utilize your time to get political power. And my hunch is that the, one of the most effective ways to get political power as an individual is to do what you feel comfortable and positive about doing and have some rewards from or you burn out. And number two, not to expect that you're going to see a return. It's wonderful when you do. But we don't know, as you know from all the pundits and all the people who have been doing this for a long time, we don't know what it is that makes the change. And so I think you have to sort of believe um, a little bit in um, string theory. The butterfly you know, shakes its wings here and a volcano erupts over there and you get an earthquake over there and there's political change over here, maybe. I think that that keeps you sustained in the long run. Did you know that feels good? What feels right? And you keep going, and maybe you can claim credit, but it's not uh, incumbent upon you to change the system. It is incumbent upon you to do your own. Right. So, did you know Dr. Richmond, by the way? I'm sorry. Did you know Julius Richmond? Did you um, know Dr. Richmond? Yes. Okay. So one of, one of his famous uh, statements was. Just keep doing what you're doing. Somebody's getting in the way, all right. But keep doing what you're doing. Do it as best as you possibly can. And that's why, you know, clinical advocacy and group advocacy on the on the things that you care about are the most important. But the the one thing I just add to that, tell people about it, right? Um, not for, for your, your fame and fortune, but because it's important, because you've got the information that other people don't have. We are privy to things that other people don't know, right? So tell them about it. And, uh, just one quick story I'll probably tell the residents. Um, at Einstein, when I was a house officer, we would have uh, midnight dinner, and we'd all be sitting around and say, yeah, the strangest thing. We have more skydivers than, do you know what, you remember what a skydiver is? Yeah. If, you, if you fall 10 flights, you know, in uh, New York City where I train, you die, right? if you fall. Um, we have more skydivers uh, than we have uh, meningitis this summer. It was a hot summer and the windows were all open. And, and so, you know, we could have kept that information to ourselves. It turned out the public health department was noticing it too, but we were noticing it. We talked to the public health department, and that's where children can't fly came from. If we kept that to ourselves, those kids, you know, we wouldn't have the, the programs. If the Richmond Center kept the information that they're getting about electronic cigarettes to themselves, we'd have a lot more uh, little tiny babies and, and so forth as, as we're going. So, so it, it, it's, but I, I suppose we should stop. Nope, so I have to wrap it up um, and just keep doing what you're doing and keep telling people about all the great work you're doing. And thank you very much to both the Stewart family and the Dr. Thank you.